Welcome to the Value Perspective podcast on decision-making. We're a group of value investors working together on the global value team here at Schroders. As investors, we have to tackle decision-making in uncertain environments every day. In this podcast series, we speak to people from other walks of life who also share the challenge of making decisions in complex and uncertain environments. We cover topics such as how to think in probabilities, tools for overcoming psychological biases, and how we can learn and improve decision-making in complex environments. We hope you enjoy it. This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation for any of the funds, services, or products or to adopt any investment strategy. Hello, and welcome back to the TVP podcast. Today, we've got Rob Gardner joining us. You may know Rob as the Director of Investments and the Executive Board Director of St. James's Place or as the co-founder of Reddington, a retirement consultancy. In addition to being a leader in wealth management, Rob is passionate about financial education. Juan and Kev of the value team sat down with Rob to chat about the decisions that Rob made when he decided to forge his own path and create a pensions consultancy, the structures and processes they use to keep a level head in a very busy life, as well as the books and games that he's created to help educate children and young people about simple and complex financial topics, including one of our very favorites, probabilistic thinking. Enjoy. Robert Gardner, thank you very much for coming to the Bio Perspective podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. For those that might not know who you are, can you please provide us with a little bit of, a, of an introduction about yourself and, and your background? Yeah, well, look, Juan, thank you uh, for having me on your your podcast. Uh, I've, I've really enjoyed getting to know it actually these past few weeks. Uh, so, yeah, I'm I'm Rob Gardner. I'm the director of investments at St James's Place, which means I'm responsible uh, for running the team that plans, grows, and protects the wealth of 850,000 clients in the UK uh, and a little bit in Asia. Uh, and collectively, we invest about 150 billion pounds on uh, on 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 their behalf. So that's kind of my day job. I'm I'm also uh, married with uh, with two lovely girls. And before SJP, I founded a company called Reddington, uh, whose mission was to kind of help make 100 million people financially secure. Uh, and I also founded a company called uh, called Mallow Street, as well as a charity called uh, Red Start, which I'm sure we'll we'll talk about later. Thanks, Rob. Um, I'm interested in, in delving back in time, if we can, and talk about Reddington a bit before we come into St James's Place. The the process of starting and founding a business is an extremely difficult one, and the uncertainty surrounding those decisions is is extreme. And you started in the financial business at similar times to myself back in 2000. You did six years in banking before deciding you've had enough and you decided to set up a consultancy in your bedroom. Could you please talk about how difficult a decision it was to leave that well-established career path and to start your own firm? Yeah, no, th- thanks, Kevin. And, and I, I suppose to, to sort of set the scene, I'd, uh, uh, I I was at Merrill Lynch and, and actually life was going pretty well for me. I'd, I'd uh, just been promoted. and I think I was the youngest director in Merrill Lynch at the time. Uh, and so it was a bit of a shock. Uh, to Merrill Lynch and to everyone who knew me when I a few months later said I was going to retire, which was what I needed to do in order to keep my my shares. But uh, in terms of the decision-making process, you're right, it's it's a tough one. And just 
the stats from starting a new business are pretty are pretty scary. I think 20% of businesses fail in the first year, 50% of businesses fail after five years, uh, and 96% of businesses fail after 10 years. So uh, being an entrepreneur and starting your own business is not the risk-free path. Uh, so, you know, point one. Point two, I was already in a pretty good, secure job uh, uh, doing doing pretty well. So you go, well, well, why would you do that? And, and that's certainly a question my mum and dad asked me. They thought I was nuts uh, leaving uh, a, a great job at Merrill Lynch. I, I have to say my, my decision-making process was really led uh, by a strong desire or a strong belief that, that I had and my co-founder, Darrod, had that there was a better way of addressing a particular problem. So Darrod and I had pioneered a, a technique called liability-driven investing, which was a way to hedge the interest rate and inflation risk of pension funds. We'd convinced friends, Provident Pension Funds, to hedge out that risk and, and really pioneered an entire, uh, an entire new industry. And we would then spend a lot of time speaking to pension fund trustees, to companies about their pension fund and saying, look, there is a better way that you can manage your risk and still invest to grow. And then the perception was, yeah, but you would say that you're investment bankers and you're just trying to sell these long dated derivatives to us. And we're like, no, 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 we're not. Look, this is really honestly the best thing for you and your, your pension fund. And it became increasingly obvious to us that in order to, to solve that problem and find a better way, that we had to kind of you know, leave the industry and 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 take on the consultants. So at the time, Watson Wire, Mercer, uh, Aon Hewitt, or, or or Hewitt Bacon and Woodrow, and 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 actually say, look, we think we can show a better way to do this. And so, the genesis of Reddington was this simple idea, uh, which we actually wrote in our FSA application form at the time, which is we wanted to do to pensions what what Jamie Oliver did to to school food. So we we were really driven by this kind of deep sense of finding a better way of solving a problem. In terms of the kind of risk management of my decision, I kind of took the view, I was six years into my career, I was doing pretty well. And what was my downside? So it was kind of like mapping out my downside. I wasn't married, I didn't have kids. And I figured, you know, I'm not leaving the industry to travel the world or set up a, a sushi restaurant. I'm still in the same domain. So the, my domain was the same, it was pension funds. And my, my backstop, and by the way, I never predicted the global financial crisis, but my backstop was, if I've left Merrill Lynch, do a year and a half of trying to do a pension consultant, speak to lots of trustees, uh, speak to lots of CFOs, and it's a complete failure, I'm pretty confident that Merrill Lynch or RBS or Morgan Stanley or Goldman Sachs would, would, would harm me back. So I was kind of driven by this clear sense of purpose and, and, and a desire to solve a financial problem. I was also doing, I wasn't doing it alone. I was doing it with, with Dawid, uh, who my co-founder and, and someone uh, that I trusted intimately. Uh, and so from a, not a financial risk and reward perspective, but I, I, I actually thought my downside was pretty well, well covered. And when you started knocking on doors and calling people up, how difficult was it as a, as a, relatively young and relatively experienced consultant to go into the consultancy waters were people willing and able to take your calls or was it very difficult yeah so actually as i uh, was resigning or retiring from merrill lynch uh, a very senior md grabbed me to try and convince me to stay and he he took out his business card and he pointed to the merrill lynch logo which is a ball uh, and he 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 went on to explain he said look rob you've got to understand 
the only reason people talk to you is because you work for Merrill Lynch. And when you leave to set up your own business, no one uh, will will talk to you, uh, which clearly didn't work as a uh, re- recruitment retention yeah. technique. But I think it did point out a valuable point that obviously credibility, people need to trust you and trust is, you know, your integrity. Do you do what you do? But it's also are you credible at, at what you do? And so it, Dowd and I were very credible. I think we'd established a lot of credibility in what we did at Merrill Lynch. We had deep domain expertise around derivatives, around pensions, around uh, liability-driven in, in investing. So we had that bit covered. Uh, but we needed to establish ourselves as a brand. Uh, and and so a couple of things, really. Right from the get-go, I think Dowd and I have always tried to lead the industry through thought leadership, share ideas, put our ideas out there, uh, and build that that sense that these people really know what they're talking about. They are they are clear domain experts. So that's point one. And use that to build a brand and a reputation around, uh, around Reddington. The second thing was a really simple one, which is I used to wear glasses. I've lots of people now at SJP say, I didn't know you used to wear glasses. Uh, and the reason why I wore glasses is it makes you look older. It makes you look more credible. And so now I'm older, I want to look younger and I wear contact lenses. <laughs> but when I was younger, I used to, uh, you know, wear a suit and a tie and wear glasses and, and make myself look, uh, look older for exactly, for exactly that reason. So um, I'm interested, Rob, as well. How different was the reality from the original business plan when you set it up? So when Reddington, from my perspective, has been outrageously successful in, in what it does. But presumably on your business plan, it didn't say goal one to be outrageously successful. And how different was the reality from what you expected? Did you just say, if we build it, it will come? Or did you say, we need this number of clients by this date to, to validate what we do? So directionally, we were 90% right. It just took us a lot longer than we thought it would. Yeah. And I think probably any entrepreneur would, you'd never leave. If, if it took as long as you thought it would take, you'd never yeah. leave. But, you know, if, so as I say, when we set up, it wasn't the FCA at the time, it was the FSA. And we wrote that we wanted to do to pensions what Jamie Oliver had done to school food. And by that, we wanted to change the way people thought about pensions. And, and I remember sort of, writing you know we wanted to be thought leaders that we wanted to uh, that our way would become a gold standard and actually success would be that other consultants adopted our approach which i think has has been proven to be the case so it wasn't just you know financial objectives around you know number of clients and and revenues uh, of course you know we tweaked our business model and, and and all the rest but i would say the main thing is we were broadly directionally correct uh we just completely underestimated how long it would take and then uh you know two years after we started the global financial crisis hit as well so that made things a little bit spicy and and reddington has been uh, and by luck or judgment uh, and probably a bit of both reddington has been very successful and then you came to the decision to to leave your own firm to leave your baby to leave your co-founder and to go into back into a more established business can you talk about how your decision-making framework managed to strip out the emotion from from anything else as part of that decision and what brought you to 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 SJP? Yeah, so it, it, it was partly uh, some sort of push factors and 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 some pull factors and 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 the, and the background was in 2017 
we actually, this was Reddington, tried to go and do a small sort of private equity fundraise to, we needed some capital to grow. So up until that point, we'd been completely self-funded. So we'd run a uh, what's called a customer-funded uh, business model. So as you get new clients, you get the revenues, you you reinvest that. But that 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 limits your your the rate of uh, growth. And we wanted to invest in technology, and we wanted to expand into new into new territories. Uh, there's nothing like taking your business to investors. Uh, and if you've got children, no one ever says to you, your your children are ugly. But when you take your business <laughs> to investors, they, 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 they do tell you they, they, they don't hold back. And so, look, they, the, the positives were we love the purpose of your business. We love the culture. We love the clients. You've got like a really good you know, VIP, an amazing client list, really long term uh, relationships with them. But what we don't know is how reliant is Reddington on you two, the co-founders? C- can you win new business? Uh, you, you know, can you grow without the co-founders? And so they 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 offered us some money, but they kind of haircut the valuation. They were very clear about that because they were like, we 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 think there's a lot of key key person dependency on on Darren and 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 you. And, I, and I'm guessing this is always the entrepreneur's dilemma, which is. Uh, actually, to create real value is to be able to make sure that your business can succeed and grow without you in it. And that was a real aha moment that actually uh, that the, the business would be more valuable if we could demonstrate that we can make it demonstrate it could succeed and grow without us in it. So that was a, the, the sort of push factor, which I'd, I'd not really uh, uh, thought about Uh Interestingly, we'd both stepped down on our 10th birthday, which was 2016. So we'd already put a, a, a new CEO in place. Uh, and then the second bit was a bit, it was unlike me, was a bit sliding doors, which was, uh, I was having breakfast with David Lamb, who was my predecessor at SJP. And and he basically said, look, Rob, I'm confidentially, I'm going to be retiring soon. We're running a process for my uh, replacement. And we'd like to include you in that. Uh so in terms of my decision making, in terms of once I'd realized that actually I needed to find a way out of Reddington, was I needed something that was aligned with what uh, I, I cared about. And so I use a framework called Igikaye, which is uh, the Japanese reason uh, or, or purpose for being. And it's if you imagine a Venn diagram with overlapping petals, uh, what you're good at, uh, what you can get paid for the intersection of those two is your profession, uh, what the world needs uh, and what you love. And if you can find all of those things at the heart of that, that's your, your, your ikigaya, your sweet spot. And, and so f- for me, I've always been very sort of purpose-driven. Reddington has always been about transforming uh, people's financial future. And like, the purpose of Reddington is to help make 100 million people financially secure. Uh, and I'd spent the bulk of my time really advising pension fund trustees. So Reddington's very much a a business to business relationship rather than to an end client. And I, I'd always wanted to get closer to actually helping individuals' uh, personal financial circumstances. And you know, SJP was when I joined, and even more so now. You know, one of the biggest in the business today. We have, a, as I said earlier, eight hundred fifty thousand. Uh, clients. So for me, it was very much in that Igikaye circle. The, the second thing is that I knew the business very well. 
so again, you know, I, I'm a big believer in you don't want to change too many variables at once. And, and it was still in my domain. So although I was changing domains from pensions to wealth, the investment part of my domain was staying strong. So I thought, okay, I'm changing a domain pension to wealth. Uh, and I also know SJP as well as I could know any country, any company from the outside. Uh, you know, I could, they were a client of Reddington. So I, I knew the people and the organization very well. So actually the variables that I was changing were, were relatively small. Uh, and again, I always take the view that my, you know, my downside risk is low. If I go in and do a good job, uh, I'm, 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 I'm reasonably confident that I'll find, you know, other opportunities elsewhere. And so in a way, similar mindset decision-making to the leaving Merrill Lynch one. Changing gears. Um, we had as a guest twice on this podcast, Annie Duke and Annie is very passionate as a passionate believer in getting people at their at a younger age with the tools that they will need to make better decisions in life and some of those tools involve um some statistical um uh, tools that should be part of their curriculum when they are either in primary school or, or in high school and i believe that you share some of that passion as well you've written a book uh, to educate uh, children very early in their lives about financial education. Can you tell us what the book is about, what the name is about? And I think that you've mentioned a charity as well. Yeah, so uh, I, I wrote a few years ago, actually five years ago, I wrote Save Your Acorns, which is a book written for, for four to six-year-olds. Uh, and it's really, the idea is to start the conversation with children and actually secretly with their parents about money and and, and how it works and that the, the kind of backstory to that and and also Red Start the charity I founded was when I was working at Reddington it was very clear to me that financial responsibility had shifted from the people we work for our employers and governments to us as individuals but no one had really told individuals so you could find yourself at Schroders sat next to someone who's five years older than you and they've got a db pension fund which is worth many many times more than you and your defined contribution pension and to the average person you've both got a pension except one's called defined benefit and one's called defined contribution and like how can they be that different but i promise you they are very very different uh outcomes and 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 and, and, and promises and so one of the things that i back to that iggy kaye I feel passionate about is the sad truth is, is that the average man in the UK will run out of money 10 years before he dies and the average woman will run out of money 12 and a half years before she dies. Uh, people don't feel confident about making decisions about money. And in the short term, uh, it turns out that 50% of all mental health issues are caused by typically indebtedness and sort of poor financial decision making. And, and it's not a surprise really because Financial education isn't on the school syllabus. It was only put on the secondary school syllabus in 2014. Uh, parents would rather talk to their children about sex than about money. Money is a very taboo subject. We don't really talk about it. Uh, and actually, decision-making about money has become infinitely more complex than it was 50 years ago. 50 years ago, it was pretty simple. You worked. You got paid a pay packet, typically in a brown envelope. You got a pension. You maybe went and put your money in the post office. Uh, and, you know, you probably went to the cinema or the working men's club 
on the weekend and, and life was simple. Today we have ICES, JICES, LICES, pensions, DB, DC, where we've got more fund managers than underlying equities. We've got more equity indices than underlying equities. Uh, we've got credit cards, we've got store cards, we've got pay as you go, we've got every, like our lives are bombarded with financial decision making. And yet the average adult or the average person is just ill-equipped to make those. Uh, and so uh, I, I'm kind of deeply committed through financial education uh, to try and teach the next generation about how money works and how to make it work for them. And the big insight for me was in 2013, when some research was done by Cambridge University and the Money Advice Service that showed that our money saving habits, that's a key word, habits, are formed by the age of seven. And I'd only just become a dad. Uh, I was reading a lot of children's books, mostly Peppa Pig to my daughter. And I thought, actually, books are a great way to deliver parables, right? You know, think of sort of fables and all the rest. And so I thought, I know what, I'll write a, a children's book called Save Your Acorns uh, to teach children about saving, about sharing, uh, and about how to grow your money, this kind of concept of, of compound interest, all in 850 words uh, and 32 pages. What would you say based on everything that you have researched and your experience is the most difficult financial concept to get across, not only to children, but to people in general? No, I, I, probably compound interest is the one that I think changes the game. I mean, you, you know, you and your listeners work in fund management and have figured out that actually managing capital gives you massive leverage, massive compound returns on your efforts and 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 your careers. I think compounding is everywhere. It's not just financial compound. It's 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 also knowledge knowledge compounds, social networks compound. Who you know and how to use your social network can 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 make a, a big difference. And so. Uh, this idea that you can earn money on your money and that you can earn money while you sleep or you can just change your wealth by some very simple steps but done over decades is is enormous i mean the the reality is is 90% of warren buffett's 90 billion dollars in wealth was made after he turned 65 if he'd stopped at 65 no one would have ever heard of him he'd just be a guy with a few million dollars <laughs> He's done pretty well, hasn't he? Well, no, what he's nailed is what Joe talks about in his podcast. He understands that the most valuable asset is time. Yeah. And yes, he's had impressive returns, but actually he's 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 been a he's been compounding for 75 years. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, through some extraordinarily good environments, but also managing to in the drawdown environments to make sure you don't get hit too much as well. Um, yeah. So I, I totally agree with you, Rob. So it, interestingly, so I've got two young kids as well, and I've got a, a, a savings app set up for them. I don't know if we're allowed to plug other apps, but it's called Bankaroo. Um, <laughs> so I've plugged it anyway. Um, but in that you can put money into separate pots. So we have a, a savings pot for them. We have a spending pot for them and a sharing pot for them. And every week we put a pound into each of those three different pots. And the savings pot we've put an outrageous amount of interest on it so they can see the impact of that compound interest on a weekly basis. And they like nothing better than to see how much interest they've made over the last week um, on their savings. And, 
and that demonstrates how high a rate we've put on it because they can see it on a, on a weekly basis, but to try and really hammer home that importance of saving and the benefit of compound interest on that. Um, so again, switching gears, uh, one of the hardest things... Sorry, Kevin, I was just going to yeah. plug another app. Just So we use Rooster yes. Money, uh, which is the same okay. thing, and we've also done the same. And uh, We've set our rate of interest at 20% a month uh, yeah. to, to do exactly that so that you can yeah. see the benefit over a month and see the benefit of not having it in the giving or spending yeah. account. Uh, for example, and they might not be too happy. They might not be too happy when they grow up and realise that interest rates aren't twenty percent a month. Uh, but you know that's the world we live in today, right? Um, so one of the hardest things for people to understand and learn uh, are decisions where the feedback doesn't come immediately. So where you don't have that twenty percent monthly interest, and in fact it's drawn out over a much longer time period, it's much harder to learn. So if you're taking penalties in football, you immediately know whether you've scored. If you serve in, in tennis, your feedback is immediate. But when making investment decisions, the feedback is often noisy and occurs sometimes years later. And that means that people make poor investment decisions and often learn the wrong lessons. They often don't save enough because they don't know how long they're going to live for. They don't think about the environmental impact of some of the decisions they make. So how do we create structures or processes that better give feedback or teach those lessons to adults. Yeah, it's a great uh, it's a great question. And 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 I know based on previous podcasts, you're probably going to ask me what my one of my favorite books, but one of them is How Will You Measure Your Life? Clay Christensen. Uh, and it's no, it's not about finance, it's about he makes it basically they track these graduates from Harvard University and track them every five years and and it's about their decisions, about relationships, about their health, and sort of 20, 30 years later, who is still healthy, who is still in a healthy relationship with their partner, who has healthy relationships with their, their kids. And I, I'm guessing parenting is a great example of something where the feedback, Kevin, you won't know whether you've been a good dad or not until 20 years time, right? Someone once said to me, you've got a thousand weekends with your children, spend them wisely. It doesn't matter what mistakes that you make along the way, but we'll only know we've been good parents once they've flown the nest and they're adults standing on their own two feet. Uh, and that's really tough, right? That's you. Every decision you you make every night, you know, do you do you help them? Do you not help them? Uh, how how do you prepare them to to to, to make decisions? So the, the reason I say that is obviously. The parallel there is it's something that takes decades for you to realize the outcome. I think getting married is the same. I think people's approach to relationships uh, it is like who we get married to is probably the most one of the most important decisions we make. And how many of us apply, and this sounds terrible and completely unromantic, but a proper process to uh, identifying who's going to be our life partner. And look, I've been married for 13 years. I've been with my wife for 17 years. In some senses, we're quite different people from who we were. So how do you know that you're going to build a life together? And the amazing thing is that actually su successful relationships, people who can hold a successful relationship, compound their wealth 77% faster than people who live on their own. And one of the best ways to destroy your wealth is to get divorced. Uh, all of this doesn't answer the question you asked me because we never really think about 
these things, right? I mean, who gets married and has a conversation about if we have kids, you know, what kind of education are we going to give them? What kind of parenting style are we going to have? And yet, when you do get married and you do have kids, these are absolutely the conversations you need to have. So somehow we need to understand and experience these concepts at a faster pace, which is exactly what you've done and I've done with the compound interest. So you can understand it, even though it doesn't play out. So I read a book like, how will you measure your life? I read books like Steve Peters' Chimp Paradox, and I write my tombstone, my tomb of life, to think about what do I want people to write about me when I die in order to frame the decisions and choices I might make today. And then the second thing is it's all about habits and staying the course. So then you need to read James Clear's book, Atomic Habits, because once you do that, then you need a habit that says, how do I maintain on track? How do I not get divorced because I spend my entire time at work and and not enough time at home? Or how do I make sure that I benefit from compound interest by putting money into my pension and my ISA every month? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I suppose it's, it's a combination of education to help understand these long-term processes that play out. And then at the same time, using sort of behavioral hacks in the case of investing, you know, automated saving is the best behavioral hack you can do to keep you on track to, 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 to achieve the outcome that you want to achieve. Really interesting. Yeah. I want to go back to your book um, because, and this goes in line with what you were just saying, one of the um, one of the most difficult things to or messages to get across to people in general, and and this is quite important for children as well, is the fact that there's only one future that will play out, but there might be many different scenarios, and you just don't know which one will actually go through. And in your book, you have the example with bad behavior and good behavior, and one tool that we have talked about uh, very much in this podcast is how to adopt probabilistic thinking, which should help you assess the fact that there's not only one outcome, but many different outcomes that can play out in the future. And how to best adopt probabilistic thinking, because once you mention the word probability to people, they tend to black out. And it's just very difficult to embrace. And so we're interested in, in whether or not you have given any thought on how to Um, educate people at a very young age to adopt probabilistic thinking and what would be the best way to do this is it through more books like the the one that you have already uh written or about table games where you incorporate chance what what would be that so the 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 follow-up to my book was i created a card game called silly monkeys uh And I think games is a very powerful way. And obviously, Annie Duke is a former world champion poker player, which is a game. And probably one of the best games to understand probability and uh, and, and a whole host of negotiation skills. Uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful game. Uh, but at Red Start, the charity that we created, the way we teach is through what's called experiential learning. And I, earlier, I said it was about habits. And... We use Montessori techniques to teach conceptual project concepts like compound interest. So we use building towers out of wooden blocks to understand how you how you can compound. So in this game, Red Start, everyone is given a thousand pounds. 
And there's a series of games that you can choose. So you've got fighting fit where you exercise for money. And the, the, the point there is it's, it's, it, it, th- th- there is no leverage to that. So it's like being a hairdresser or an Uber driver. There's only so much hair you can cut a day. So you're capped out at how much money you can earn. Uh, we have someone who scams you. We have Rich Ricky who offers to double your money and he has this amazing investment opportunity and he scams people. Uh, we have a the game called Built to Last where you build blocks and the taller the towers, the more money you do, but the more towers you build, the more you compound. And so we can teach risk and return and diversification. And then we have a game called Eye on the Prize, which is darts. And if you're skillful at darts, you can make a lot of money. And if you're not skillful at darts, you don't. So it's about skill. And do you understand your skill? And can you leverage your skill? Uh, then we have another game, which is called Playing with the Big Kids, which is basically 21, which is all about luck. And we've played this with thousands and thousands of kids. And the point is, is that the, the winner is normally the one who figures out built to last, the compounding game, gets good at it, practices and gets better and better. But we do have people who win from playing playing with the big kids, which is just gambling or speculating. Because in life, you can get lucky. You can win a lottery. Uh, luck is a big part of life. And sometimes the kids who win are the ones who are really good at darts. Because guess what? If you're really good at darts, if you're really good at football, if you're really good at tennis, you're going you're, you're gonna to nail it. So the game is laden with probability and outcome. And every time, it's 25, 30 different kids. So, so no game is the same. So... I'm a, I'm a, I love games as a way of teaching. I think as a kid, I used to play past the pigs, which is, uh, it's a bit like Yahtzee or a dice game because you've got to trade off what you're going to throw. But if you throw a certain combination, you lose your go. If you throw another combination, you lose everything. And it's about getting to 100. So it, at no point do we talk about probabilities, but in those games, probability is everywhere. Uncertainty is everywhere. And it's all about teaching people to navigate uncertainty, not maybe being as explicit about base rates and probabilities as Annie is. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, We had a guest on the podcast. uh, His name is Hector Ibarra. He was saying that he has seen the Red Cross use uh, games to help people in very underdeveloped areas of the world understand the concept of risk and uncertainty in general. I guess one of the things that um, I've seen as a pushback that Annie Duke has had to dealt with when she's um, uh, pushing um, games and poker games or card games for children to understand problems and, and uncertainty is that it might drive them to gambling, to the concept of gambling, which is not the uh what you are aiming for do you have any thoughts on that yeah so look we call the we call the game playing with the big kids and it's a game within games so that's why we have the dark game we have the fighting fit game we have the built to last. the point is the built to last game is one that actually you can practice and get good at and the more you practice that you get better and you can teach about diversification the more blocks you build you've got more diversification you've got less risk you can also teach about compounding. You can also talk about building taller towers and risk and return. So we don't have that game as a standalone game. It's a game embedded in that game. And I think it's more about sort of lottery. It, we're not trying to, it, it's, it's not gambling. It's just trying to stay that you could take part in something and, and it's kind of luck whether you win or lose. You're not, you're not in control. What we're trying to get across is, are you in control of the outcome? The darts game, you control the outcome. The built to last you control the outcome in 
fighting fit, you can control the outcome by how much shuttle runs you do or how many star jumps you do. But in the in the game that we've set up, which is 21, but we don't call it that, it's really that you don't control the outcome. It's purely luck. So there's a framing point that I think is important. One other thing that you were mentioning before was the fact that you will only know many years after the fact whether or not you have done a good job on the process that you built over time. You were referring to the education, how well educated or the decisions that your children will make in life based on the education that you provided them and the tools that you provided them to deal with whatever uncertainties come in life. And that's also something that happens a lot in, in, in the investment world. We, we design processes and despite whatever happens short term, we will only know whether or not that process was good or not many years after the fact. How do you how do you communicate the importance to people of process over outcome? Yeah, I mean, look, in the work context, that 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 is extremely important. And, and Reddington is built on processes and our pension risk management framework and begin with the end in mind. I've, I've never really thought about it in terms of how I would explain it to someone outside of our industry, as opposed to stepping back, one of the things I would say is that no decision is a decision. And often people think that not making a decision is avoiding it. But I think just getting people to realize that kicking the can down the road is a decision. So own it. I think the second point where I slightly challenge the thinking and I, is that I think one of the things is that sometimes you have to make decisions in uncertainty and then manage the outcome. So when I was talking about leaving Merrill Lynch to set up Reddington, there were some outcomes I wasn't in control of, but I'd at least thought about those and I had a plan now, of which was I could go back with my tail between my legs and try and get a job at a JP Morgan or a Morgan Stanley. And I at least had an, I, I at least had a kind of if this, then that outcome, if that makes sense. And I think people often get paralyzed by decision because people are always looking for black and white decisions. And I always think certainly in a leadership context, it's different from investing you're paid to make decisions where it's gray, where it is unclear, where the probability is 40% or 60%. When the probability is 10% or 90%, it's easy. What's the value? The value is when you make the decisions in the murky bit right in the middle, in that 40% to 60% zone. And therefore, I think it's about, well, what could happen and how am I going to execute? Uh, what If this happens, what can I execute and how can I, uh, how can I better, better control the, the outcome? And and I think it, it it does go back to to talking about these things. I you know I if if I'm if I'm together with my school friends, uh, you try and analyze and go, you know, what are the good decisions that we've made, and what and what are the poor decisions we made? You know, people have changed jobs, people have been in relationships that have and haven't worked out, uh, and and at least having the discipline of looking back and going. And analyzing the decisions and going, what was the signature? Was there a pattern there that I could have identified and and avoid making the same mistake in the future? And learning from other people's decisions and other people's mistakes is clearly the cheapest way we can do it. But taking the time to reflect is something that many people don't spend enough time doing. Uh, we're all so busy. We're on the treadmill. There's another decision coming, another decision coming. And actually, you're far better off trying to carve out a separate portion of your day, whether it be 5, 10, 15% of your day, to review historic decisions and how they've played out, 
to make ensure you make better decisions going forwards. And that's something I think personally feel that as individuals and as an industry, we we don't do well enough. Um, we try on our team to 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 build processes and structures around it to ensure that we do, but it is is not straightforward simply because time management is very difficult. Yeah, and I think look, I so I have a concept called red, blue, black. I've got three pens here, red, blue, black, and every week I map out my diary. Uh, black is kind of a bit like the important but not urgent. It's the strategic stuff, going to the gym, spending quality time with your wife, spending quality time with your kids, and it's too easily lost. Red is the admin, paying the bills, doing your emails, and then blue is the stuff that you need to get doing your job, investing, managing your team, etc. And I, 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 you know, work with my PA every month to analyze my diary and look at the split between red, blue and black and try and deconstruct and go, what happened here? Or I was out three nights in a row here. And that then, guess what? That then caused an argument on the weekend yeah. with my wife and go, okay, well, how do we avoid not having three nights out in a row? Uh, and look, you don't always get it right, but I get it. I, I certainly get it more right now than I, I did five years ago, for sure. And that's what we can all strive for, right? Getting better gradually over time, compounding those lessons so that we ultimately become better people and better investors. Yeah. So, uh, Rob, thank you very much for your time. We usually end with two questions, a nice one and a nasty one. You've already given us the answer to the nice one, I think. So usually we ask for a book recommendation and how will you measure your life? That sounds like an extremely interesting book and I'm going to be straight on Amazon afterwards. Uh, other, other book publishers and places do exist, but I'm going to go and <laughs> order it online straight afterwards. Um, but that leaves, unless there is another book recommendation yeah, that you'd got- like to make that. Ah. Cool. I've got one that I've just bought and, and I've followed this guy for years on Twitter. He's called on Twitter. He is at Naval. His name yeah. is Naval Ravik, Ravikant. And he, yeah. someone, I don't think he's written the book. Someone's basically written a book, written up all of his talks and all of his tweets. It's called the Almanac of Naval Ravikant, a guide to wealth and happiness. Uh, just, yeah, I, I, I've, I love his, tweets and his twitter threads uh and this is this is a book with all of his wisdom condensed into into one book so that's my most recent book uh and and it's gone pretty much to the top of my chart list okay brilliant okay thank you very much um well that leaves us with the the uh the last question which is the somewhat um uh less nice question which is could you give us an example of a time where you've made a bad decision and it was driven by a bad process rather than just simply bad luck? Yeah, there were lots of them and I don't want to name, so they either to do with fund managers or they are to do with people hiring decisions. And I don't think it's appropriate for me to say which fund managers and which names, but I think they come down to those two things. Actually three things, hiring, promoting, and either selecting or deselecting fund managers. Uh, one of the things that we learned at Reddington is, I suppose, hiring, unless you have a written down process, deselecting or firing a fund manager is very difficult. One of the behavioral hacks that I use for all of when I was a consultant is I'd always ask myself, Imagine I'm in the Treasury Select Committee two years from now, and I'm trying to explain the advice I gave to a client. Why did they hedge? Why did they use that much collateral? Why did they uh, move out of equities into high yield? Why did they 
deselect that if I manage an appoint that one. So I, that's a very good behavioral hack, the Treasury Select Committee one. And my team will know, I go, imagine it's the Treasury Select Committee. How will you explain it? In order to explain it, you need a process. And so one of the things that we did uh, at Reddington was create this kind of process by how we select fund managers, a kind of 10 by 10 by 10 matrix. And it was kind of 10 factors. But embedded in it was this idea of red flags, which what red flags would cause us to end this fund manager. And sometimes it's obvious, you know, the, the key portfolio manager or a merger between the company. The mistake that then creeps in with that process is the uh, frog in boiling or the toad in boiling water, which is what happens if you don't have any red flags, but you have a yellow flag and another yellow flag. And this is happening over a long period of time and another yellow flag and another yellow flag. So the question is how many yellow flags make a red flag? And quite often when they're dissipated over time, we can't see it. And sometimes we need to zoom out and see all the information. And then when you look at it with hindsight, and that's always the problem with hindsight, it's so obvious. But in the midst of it, uh, you, 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 you can't sort of make, uh, make, make those decisions. I would, I would say the same is true with hiring. And I remember in the early days of, of Reddington, uh, it was after the global financial crisis. And, and obviously, there were a lot of ex-investment bankers who'd lost their jobs and were looking for jobs. And we hired some extremely competent people. Uh, and I, I suppose our, our hiring was really very one-dimensional. It was based on competence, you know, years of experience, knowledge around derivatives and all the rest. And we didn't do enough on values. And crucially, we didn't set a threshold on values. And, it, and therefore, if you imagine it's a two-by-two two grid of competence and values, uh, we ended up with some highly competent people whose values were not right. Yeah. And uh, you would describe them as toxic talent. Uh, I'm sure we've come across, you've come across those people in, in, in your career. And uh, that's, again, it's not, that's why you need the reflection and go, how did we end up in this situation? How did we end up either promoting this person or hiring this person who on paper look brilliant or through our kind of quite narrow selection process look like a great hire and actually has been a disaster. Uh, and and again, the, the way to address that is two people interviewing at the same time, much more values-based, being clear up front, uh, and 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 a much more robust review review process, but in in both cases, bad hiring uh, and bad decisions about fund manager selection has been a lack of process that we can then look back to objectively. Thank you, Bob. And there's a that's very very honest and very candid. The, Bill Belichick, who's the most award winning NFL coach of all time says talent sets a floor it's character that sets the ceiling and I think that's a, a great way to think about individuals and in, in that you need a certain amount of talent to get through the door but actually what we should all be striving for is that that character to really push to the, the top echelons um, and it's not easy to set in place a process to be able to ensure you uh, you get that because that's it's always the softer side the talent bit's much easier to measure uh, but um, that is something that we in our team try to to do as part of our hiring decisions as well, but easier said than done. And you get behavioural biases because you like that person. You think yeah. this person's brilliant, and you yeah. want to bring them in. And 
and you kind of self-justify why why they're going to be great and that's why you need other people who can maybe see the the, the non-values aligned piece and be able to call it out that's right Rob Gardner, this was fascinating. Thank you very much for your time on the Value Perspective Podcast. Kevin Kwan, thanks for having me. You're very welcome. Thank you very much.